0: Hey folks, my name is Kim and this is The Contemporary Educator, a podcast dedicated to all my fellow educators out there who are trying to balance the many demands placed on The Contemporary Educator. I live on the unceded traditional territories of the Lekwungen peoples of the Esquimalt and Songhees nations. So today I wanted to talk about coping strategies. We're in this environment right now where everybody's experiencing heightened stress anxiety and a real loss of control and sense of control and so we're all exhibiting different types of coping strategies while that happens some people you know they get more organized or or they feel like they need to find a way to have control in a different way Um, perhaps they are a little more on edge or they're turning down social commitments or other kinds of commitments work commitments that they normally would take on but these are all just coping strategies that we're all uh, we're all exhibiting and trying to experiment with, I guess, given the uncertainty of this time and um, the fact that this is really uncharted territory for all of us. So, students also have coping strategies, and I know we all know this inherently. We understand that students have these unique ways of of being and of coping with um, whatever situation they're in. And I think that we're going to see a lot more of them come the return to school, whether we're returning virtually or if we're returning face to face, there's going to be a whole new set of behaviors that we're going to have to contend with. And I think it's important to start to acknowledge that these behaviors are a sign of something deeper and that these behaviors are often um, the reflection of a coping strategy that a student is experimenting with. Coping strategies are not developed overnight. They are often something that students or, or people in general have experimented with once or twice and have found success using that coping strategy. So for instance, if a student is quick to tears, um, sometimes that is developed as a coping strategy to be able to have a particular need met. For a student who is not, and the same is true the opposite, right? Like if a student is not quick to tears, um, and it's really difficult for them to show emotion, quite often that's also a coping strategy that they have learned to develop over years. They've learned that it's not safe to cry, or they have learned that um, emotion doesn't get you anywhere, and that you need to be guarded. So these are all coping strategies that we have, ways of, of keeping ourselves safe, of finding some sense of control or autonomy in a situation that feels um, like we have a loss of autonomy. And behavior in general is a way for students to experiment with ways to get their needs met. And you know the basic needs of course like food, water, shelter, uh, but in school the one that we see more often is love and acceptance. And so these things are going to be much more amplified in the coming months um, because students are going to have to contend with experiences they've never had to contend with before. And that means that they're going to be trying out a whole bunch of different coping strategies just to try to see if it works like just throwing something out there and seeing what sticks and so we're going to be seeing behaviors from students that maybe we haven't seen before even students we have good relationships with there's going to be a whole different way of uh, responding to them and noticing what these behaviors are so I'm going to urge you that as you listen to this podcast as we go through this episode um really try to think of your students that you would normally think of as having a behavior problem or behavior issue or that are considered non-compliant. Try to call those students into mind and try to think about um, some experiences you've had with this young person, what that behavior was that was probably driving you up the wall or was making it very difficult for you to instruct the rest of the class or for the rest of the class to focus and um, think of these students and try to identify like what is the coping strategy that this student is employing with that behavior and if it's not a coping strategy what need is it that they're trying to have met it's going to be one of those two things I can guarantee it because Behaviors are, they don't happen in a vacuum. You know, a student doesn't walk in one day and say, I can't wait to piss off that teacher. I can't wait for them to hate me. And uh, I just want to have the worst year ever. No student is going into their school year thinking that. But I think that a lot of teachers, when we are faced with a a student that we have difficulties building rapport with or um, who make it that much more difficult for us to deliver our lesson, It can be really hard to isolate the behavior from the kid. And so then we start to think of that kid as being troublemaker, as being problematic. And we start to dread that kid coming to our class. And then we create this self-fulfilling prophecy, right? Like we expect them to behave inappropriately. And so we start to respond to their behavior, perhaps more authoritarian than we would with other students or perhaps stricter or, you know, it takes very little for that student to get sent to the office or get sent outside, whatever you know our, our strategy is. And so I'm just going to urge you this time to really think about the particular student and some particular scenarios and see if any of these things ring true for you and for this student. So Also, while you're listening to this, keep in mind that this is also classroom management. So this is really as much as this is a podcast on coping strategies, this is also a podcast on classroom management. Because if you can start to understand those base needs and what those strategies are coping for the student or how that student is coping with something using those strategies, I should say once you can understand that you can start to employ different strategies and tactics to get buy-in from that individual and that's really what we want we don't want to manage our students we're not managers that's not the intent here the intent is to create an environment in which these students want to learn and the best way to do that is to understand their needs and then meet them so with all that said i'm just going to start diving into some coping strategies and this is no means by no means an exhaustive list Coping strategies can be applied across the spectrum to different mental health struggles that students are having, um, to different mental health diagnoses, to different physiological barriers and, and diagnoses that way as well. Um, so there's all sorts of things that people are coping with daily and types of strategies that we'll see them using in a classroom. But for the purposes of this podcast, um, I'm just going to be focusing on behavior um, and some of the more typical disrupt, quote unquote, disruptive behaviors that we might see that are actually a coping strategy and what they might be coping with and why they think it's effective. So that's kind of what I'm diving into here. At a later podcast, if you do want to know more about coping strategies um, across the board, I'm planning to do a podcast at some point on suicidality as that's uh, been a specialization of mine. And um, anxiety, of course, is another specialization of mine. So I'll talk about all these things in more depth in another podcast. But this is specifically for behavior um, in the classroom. So the first strategy that we see from students is um, disruption. So we might see a student who is intentionally disrupting a lesson, who is struggling to sit in their seats. Um, Maybe they're fidgeting a lot, or they're talking to their classmates, or they're making lots of crude jokes or obnoxious jokes out loud for the rest of the class to hear. And in those moments, it's really hard to see it as a coping strategy. Like, I get it. I have been there and I feel frustrated when I'm constantly asking a student to please listen. And if they can't listen to at least please just let us get through the lesson. I get it. But quite often what disruption is doing, it's allowing the student to control the environment. And whether you have a positive response or a negative response when you're controlling the environment, you at least know what to expect. So what it effectively does is it creates predictability for that student. So if they know, I know that if I behave like this, this is going to happen, and then this is the subsequent response to that, and then this is the outcome. They're going to continue to exhibit that strategy because it allows for them to create a predictable environment. So... Even if that predictability isn't positive or isn't actually what that student is after um, personally, what it what it does is it allows them to have a sense of control. And right now, as we all know, our environment is completely out of control. It feels overwhelming and daunting to think about all of the things we have no control over. And when we don't have control, we are... Um, we're really left to the devices of the universe or for the powers that be, whatever, right? Like we're just kind of thrown to the wolves and sink or swim. This is what students are, are dealing with as well. And as much as we want to know what's happening in September or we want to know what's going to happen over the next school year, so do they. And so if you're noticing an increase in disruption from all of your students or even just one student, um, start to consider that this might be their effort to control the environment. So what do you do with that? If they're looking to find a way to control the environment and create a self-fulfilling prophecy and say, I knew that this was going to happen because I behaved like this, what do we do with that? How do we allow that student to have a little more control? The idea then is to start to allow the student to um, find other ways of getting control over themselves, over their situation. And we see this all the time, pandemic or not, from students who um, feel as though their home life might be a bit chaotic too. That they're often just looking for ways to um, not only control but also get a response and get some attention. So how can we increase the opportunity this student has to get control over the environment, their specific environment, while also um, getting some positive reinforcement and some positive attention and use the disruption as an opportunity to build rapport. My suggestion for that would be, you know, if if you're seeing the same behavior day after day after day, the best thing that you can do is to not acknowledge that specific behavior, but start to acknowledge what the need is. And if you can do that privately more so than publicly, that's obviously better so pulling students aside and asking them, like, how can I help you? What is it that you need right now is really helpful and allowing them some choice in the day. So if this student is, uh, you know, rebelling against whatever assignment or resisting a particular task, chances are that particular task is something that feels too out of the realm of possibility for that student for that day. It doesn't mean that they'll feel that way in the evening. It doesn't mean they'll feel that way tomorrow. But there's a lot of reasons that a student in that particular day might not be able to engage the way that you want or meet those expectations. It doesn't mean that we're lowering our expectations of the student to allow them some flexibility and some freedom of choice. What it does is it says, I know that you're capable of this. I know that you can be capable of it tomorrow. How can I help you today, right now in this moment? So try out that strategy and consider disruption as a way for a student to try to um, find control. And if you can start to identify that, how are you going to help them find control? So the next pattern that we often see is avoidance. Students will avoid a particular assignment or avoid a task as a coping strategy when they may be missing um, foundational skills needed to perform that task or that, that assignment. So you need to start to consider where those gaps in foundational learning might be. I noticed this a lot when I worked in alternative school because a lot of our students would have been away, some of them hadn't been in school for four or five years. And so they would come to school, they'd show up, and that was enough of a sign to tell me that they wanted to learn. However, when I would sit down with them to try to teach them a particular concept, there was a lot of resistance. They would avoid sitting down with me they would literally see me <laughs> coming and they would run down the hall and out the back door or they would go into the kitchen and go and make tea and they'd be like oh as soon as i'm done my tea oh yeah 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 i just i got to do this one thing first and then you know they're avoiding the task and it's because they were missing so many of the important skills that they needed in order to be able to do that task at the level that they needed to be able to perform it at this then isn't about the student not being able to do the task at hand it's just about their fear of not being able to do it because they didn't have all of the skills from grade six that led to success in grade seven all the skills from grade seven that led to success in grade eight and so on and so we need to then just be able to break it down and start with the foundational skill that this student fears that they're missing they may or may not be missing that skill right so for instance If the assignment is to write an essay and you have a student who's never written an essay because they haven't attended school since grade six or grade five, the worst thing I can do to get engagement is to say, write this essay. But what I can do is say, okay, let's sit down and let's just write a few sentences together and, um, you know, we'll just, we'll answer this question with some sentences. Well, now we've got the sentences. So now how can we use those sentences to create a thesis statement? That's still just one sentence. And what is a thesis statement? Oh, it's theme. Okay, so now now we're starting to break it down and we're starting to look at where the gaps are, helping a student identify what theme is, helping them identify um, how theme ties into the idea of a thesis statement and how to write a sentence. Most of the students, if they've gone through grades, if they made it to grade six, and most of the ones that I taught did, though not all they knew how to write a sentence. And if they didn't know how to write a sentence, they knew how to speak a sentence. So it's about helping them understand that they do have the foundational skills, even if they weren't able to attend school at a, at a certain point. The other reason that students may be avoiding a particular, a particular topic or subject or, or material is because they feel unrepresented by that material. So in BC, in the schools that I teach in, we get this a lot from our indigenous students because they feel unrepresented by the material that they're learning. They feel as though the material is primarily white and male, and they are constantly trying to identify with how to learn in this European way of learning. We're finally at the point, you know, after um, after a long, long time where we are integrating Indigenous resources into our into our curriculum, and we're teaching through um, a more indigenized lens. And I think that that's a start. Um, Certainly not the end point. The end point would be, you know, creating our curriculum around indigenous ways of learning. But that's beside the point. The point is that um, if students are feeling unrepresented by the material, of course they're going to avoid it. You know, it was easy for me to engage in in school because all of the people that I was learning about had similar experiences to what I was experiencing as a white woman. And so if they can feel, if students can feel as though they're relating to the material, they're more likely to engage in it. Try to ask students where that avoidance is coming from. And if you you are having trouble identifying it on your own, um, it doesn't necessarily mean the student is aware of why they're avoiding a particular thing sometimes students develop these coping strategies very intuitively and they might not even necessarily be able to put context as to why they're avoiding something but try to give them an opportunity to sit down and hash that out with you because um, if it's something as simple as feeling like they don't have the skills it only takes a few minutes to help them understand that they do And it only takes, uh, and especially right now, there are so many fantastic resources coming out for creating a more diverse curriculum that there's no excuses now to not be doing that work. Another thing that we often will see students when we're looking at coping strategies is arguing. So we've talked about disruption, we've talked about avoidance, but the other one is just combativeness or arguing. Many of these students will come into our classrooms with a diagnosis of ODD, so oppositional defiant disorder. And if they're over the age of 15, they'll come in with a diagnosis of conduct disorder. Both of these diagnoses, first of all, opinion time, I think they're bullshit. I think that what we're doing is we're slapping a label onto very, very reasonable and understandable Responses to a host of shitty contextual circumstances. And as soon as we tell a kid they're oppositional and that they have a conduct disorder, what are we doing? We're basically just setting ourselves up for a student who is going to fit that diagnosis, whether they did beforehand or not. So, anyway, that's just my two cents. But where is the argument coming from? Where is the combativeness coming from? And quite often we can see it as a coping strategy for students who are struggling to find acceptance at school or acceptance at home. So what we'll see is a student who is arguing with the teacher because they're trying to save face in front of their peers. They're trying to look as though they're tough, they'll stand up for their peers, they um, aren't afraid of you, they aren't afraid of authority, and that they are dependable. They can be a dependable leader for the rest of their peers. Whether this strategy is successful for them or not in that moment doesn't really matter because the, the key here is that it's a strategy that they're employing to get a reaction from both you and from the rest of the class. So here's an example. I had a student teacher last year or the year before And she had taken over one of my drama classes. It was a junior theater class, and I'd had this one student in my junior theater class. This would have been his third time taking it. Not because he wasn't competent at theater, but because it was the only one that fit with his class schedule, and he kept wanting to take my class. So he took it regardless of the fact that he was ready for a senior theater class. About two weeks after my student teacher started, he came to me and he said, I don't like the student teacher. I asked him to explain why. He couldn't really give me any real reasons other than the fact that the student teacher wasn't me. As flattering as that is, it's not useful for either one of us or for our student teacher. And it was basically just because he had grown accustomed to my way of doing things and my way of doing things was different than my student teachers. And that doesn't mean that it was better. It doesn't mean anything other than the fact that he was used to it and the change was threatening. So he became very argumentative with the student teacher. And I was noticing this happen. He wanted to look knowledgeable in front of the rest of the class. He wanted to look like a leader in front of the rest of the class. The change to his environment and the unpredictability of his environment, much like I talked about earlier, led to him feeling unsettled, out of control and uncomfortable. And it was having a similar effect to some other students, but not to the same degree as it was for this particular student, because I had such a history with this student. He actually went around and gathered a petition. He wrote it out, uh, very professional looking, typed it up, and wanted to get all of the rest of the class to sign this petition, saying that they didn't like the student teacher either. This is obviously very inappropriate and unhelpful for everyone, including himself. His attempt here, this level of combativeness, wasn't because of the student teacher. It didn't matter who she was. It was just the fact that she was different than what he was used to. And it had nothing to do with if she'd been there first and I was the one coming in, chances are he would have done the exact same thing to me and have written a a proposal to have me removed as well. But the idea here is, is that he was trying to identify himself as the leader To promote himself to his peers as somebody who could be depended on to maintain the status quo. And so as disruptive, as argumentative as this behavior was, the intent there had nothing to do with me, it had nothing to do with the student teacher, and it had nothing to do with the rest of the class. It had everything to do with his own experience with the discomfort that he was feeling. So in that case, I actually just called him on it and I just said, can you just tell me what you're really feeling right now? Because I get the sense you're feeling uncomfortable. And at first he was arguing with me and saying that I was wrong. Fair enough, maybe I was. Um, But after a few minutes, he said, look, when I argue with you, I know that I still have a seat at the table. And he said, I know I'm still allowed in community circle every day and I know that you're not going to kick me out. And I know that if I go and take a walk and get a drink of water and I decide to come back, you're not going to bring up the fight again. And he says, I don't know what she's going to do. She doesn't even know what she's going to do. And so that's where his discomfort was from. The argument had nothing to do with anybody else other than his own experience of discomfort. So we need to allow room to acknowledge where that's coming from and acknowledge that argumentative behavior, combative behavior, It has nothing to do with us as educators. And it can be hard in those moments to not lean into it and to argue back or to want to appear as though we're the one with all the knowledge. But it's not doing anyone any favors to respond with, you know, battle. So letting students have that space, if they need to argue, you know, ask them to do it privately, address it head on in a private environment, you're gonna get a lot more out of it. We need to remember that anxiety, depression, all of these things, they present themselves in really different ways depending on the student and depending on their experience. And right now, our students are coming up, into coming into school rather, with a lot of anxiety and a lot of uncertainty. Our students before who were rock solid and didn't experience anxiety to the same extremes, they are now. And I know I've said this before, and if you listen to my podcast, you're probably like, okay, stop beating the dead horse here. We know anxiety is an issue. But really, what it often is, and and this is why I bring it up, because behavior is a direct reflection of a need that is being unmet and an experience um, that this the young person is having. And so, Quite often, if a need is being unmet, there is a level of anxiety associated with trying to get that need met. And so we're going to see these behaviors coming out tenfold from what we'd experienced before, because there are a lot of needs that are going to be unmet this next year, not because of us as teachers, not because of our, the parents or the families, but because we're, we're sailing through uncharted waters. And so we have to consider that um, our students are looking to regain a sense of control. And um, we just need to enter into all of this with a basic trauma-informed lens. So I'm not going to get into too much with trauma-informed today. It's a big topic and it warrants its own series of podcast episodes. But in summary, trauma-informed practice assumes that students' behaviors and um and responses are actually a response to an experience of trauma and every single one of our students this year is coming into school with a trauma they do every year but this year they have a collective trauma and that's the pandemic so this next year as you start to see behaviors coming up and you start to try to figure out your own classroom management style whether you're a new teacher or well we're all new teachers this year but whether you are you know experienced with classroom management or this is the first time try to revamp your typical classroom management strategies by considering behavior as a response to a need by considering behavior as a response to a collective trauma and try to isolate the behavior from the student and I can pretty much guarantee that as soon as you are able to do that, as soon as you can start to see the behavior for what it is, rather than feeling defensive or feeling as though you need to regain "quote unquote" control of your class, you're going to have more control because everybody's going to trust you. And so it's not going to end up being this battle of who has the most control because students are coming in looking for that too. So This is why at the start I said, envision your students that you've had the most challenges with in the past. Isolate the behavior from the student. Name the behavior. Don't label the student, right? Name what the behavior was and see if you can identify the need that is being unmet. What need is that that behavior is trying to meet and how is it a coping strategy for the lived experience that this young person is going through. So I hope that that was helpful and I hope that you're able to apply some of these strategies um, and that you found some value in this discussion. And if you have comments or you want to talk about this a little bit more, I would love to hear from you. Um, Please just shoot me an email on the blog at thecontemporaryeducator.com or find me on Instagram and DM me or just message me on one of my posts, whatever, um, at teach.emote.repeat. I hope you all have a really wonderful day and I hope that your transition this next school year is manageable.